0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. We talk a lot in this podcast about increasing funding for scientific research. That's because scientific progress is critical to driving innovation, which in turn is critical to driving economic growth. But what if simply dumping more money into basic science research isn't enough? What if pioneers like Einstein, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger were successful because they enjoyed scientific freedom? They were able to explore what they were passionate about without scientific institutions fretting about whether their findings would have usable applications. But since the 1970s, this has no longer been the case. At least that's the argument made by my guest today, Don Braden. Don is an honorary professor and vice president of research at University College London. He's the author of several books, including Scientific Freedom, The Elixir of Civilization, which was originally published in 2008 and was in 2020 republished by Stripe Press. Don, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. I would like there to be more sort of uh, transformative technological progress, more transformative scientific discovery. And uh, and about the only idea I keep hearing for that is let's spend a lot more on basic research or maybe basic plus applied research or maybe spend a lot on some sort of industrial policy. But basically, it's let's spend a lot more money on uh, on something. Uh, now, while that may be necessary, I think your book makes the case that's not sufficient.
1: It's not. What do we need to do? A, well, oh, we need to completely. Uh, well, we need to look at what we've done for, uh, uh, over the past century, over the past over the past few decades. Academics have had to adjust to radical change. Before about 1970, most academics did not have to prepare proposals for what they wanted to do. Uh, as I've said in the book. Provided the requirements for bodies, they could simply press on with whatever they had in mind, and the harvest from this unconstrained academic freedom was spectacular, and transformed the lives of everyone. Now, this depends on scientific freedom, and so uh, um, uh, spending large amounts of money certainly would be very nice for some scientists, but it would not solve the problem that I am trying to get that, that I am trying to get the, uh, 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 to complete.
0: Uh, so. How did we move away from that sort of? I'm not even sure "model" is the right word because it seemed very sort of bo- bottom up, very very curiosity driven. So how did we? Sh- but how did we shift from that? When did that happen? And how did that happen?
1: Well, um, before about 1970, arrangements in research were fine, but about round about that uh, 1970, this laissez-faire ended with governments, uh, for political reasons. Uh, wanting to implement enormous increases in the size of the academic sector and ways had to be found to severely limit academics' participation in research. It was further decided that academic research should be aimed specifically at increasing national prosperity, which previously had been an accidental benefit, of course. So today, what we find is academics must prepare written proposals on what they want to do and submit them to the target funding agency a good time to meet their strict deadlines. The proposals must be within the agency's priority areas, provide convincing arguments that the support would be the best value for money, that they will result in some sort of national benefit. Uh, It it goes on. Then invites assessment of the proposals from a few scientists chosen by the agency to act as referees, usually keeping their identities secret and treating proposals as if they were completed works. Agency committees drawn from experts in the Pacific field who give their expertise freely and are expected to have assessed all the proposals before the committee meets are guided by the referees' reports. Unfortunately, committees on average only have funds to support some 25% of proposals received. Many excellent proposals are lost, therefore, on another day with other experts with different perspectives, they might have been funded. In addition, funding agencies have strict rules on resubmissions.
0: So, is what you're describing is that the case in Great Britain? Is it also is that also the case, or, or, or is it similar in the United States?
1: Oh, it, it's, it, it is the case in Great Britain, and, uh, uh, and the main features of what I've just described will be similar everywhere in the world. Um, uh, 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 peer review now dominates everything; um, it is absolutely unavoidable, and that's is the it- problem.
0: But is there a good reason though that you you, you you know a decision has to be made in some fashion about where to spend money is there is there is there a better way of making that decision especially especially if the people making decisions are are big institutions, whether they're universities or government?
1: Well my own experience with um, with uh, uh, with the venture research initiative is highly relevant. Um, uh, 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 the venture research initiative ran from 1980 to 1990 and was sponsored by BP. Uh, we got some 10,000 proposals from European and North American scientists and supported some 40 without using peer review. The total cost was some 20 million over the decades. We developed selection methods based on extended face-to-face discussions that look for original and determined people whose research might radically change we think about something important. Most importantly, we've also fostered mutual trust and gave feedback in real time. It, 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 not, it has nothing to do with money, you see. It's low cost. This low cost initiative was very successful, and has so far led to some 14 major breakthroughs.
0: But that was through a uh, BP, British Petroleum. Can that model be used by the public sector or publicly financed institutions, which almost by their nature are going to be a lot more bureaucratic?
1: Well, the, the, uh, um, they don't have to be bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic but but um, a, a, any big company could could now set up its venture research initiative. It would be an investment in the future, and it wouldn't cost them very much.
0: Now, so, so of course, some companies, some companies, particularly the big. Uh, I mean the ones I'm most familiar with are sort of the big American uh, technology companies. You know, Google, for instance, has their sort of moonshots program. Um, but do you think? Do you think it's likely? Are you is what you're suggesting that we sort of go back to this sort of 1950s big industrial lab model, which companies eventually moved away from? Is that what you're saying? We that we should go back to that in some fashion?
1: Well, no. I mean, uh, um, the the BP initiative was not was was a tiny initiative. I mean, it doesn't need to be huge. Uh, it does not need to, 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 to cost a lot of money. We concentrated exclusively on, on selecting people uh, and on, on talking to them. and, and as I, I say, looking for creative and original people who wanted to do something different. So you know, th- th- that model would still be that w- could, could still be uh, um, resuscitated. And it doesn't, and as keep on saying, it would not cost very much. The right. current policies are at the beginning of the 20th century. The world would now be a very much harsher place. Ways must be found, therefore, of supporting the very few scientists—the ones we supported, we, we uh, attempted with um, uh, at BP—who uh, um, are capable of liberating us from this um, from this terrible uh, ailment of, of peer review dominance. You know, for the first time since the Renaissance, academics who have long been the source of the occasional astonishing, unpredicted discovery, are now faced with severe limits of what they can think and what they can do. So what you have to do is to remove those limits. And you don't need massive amounts of money. And uh, 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 I think Google are mistaken, you know, in, 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 uh, and it's also mistaken to look for... The UK is currently looking at the uh, DARPA initiative, for example, mm-hmm. um, the, the Defence Advanced uh, Research Product Agency. And that's specifically going to search for high risk, high reward proposals. But why should they do that? Why would they look for high risk when venture research proved that this is a low risk um, initiative?
0: Let's focus on on the DARPA model for a second. It would seem to me that that's kind of what we would be looking for. We'd be looking for uh, investments in sort of you know, big ideas, not incremental change. So a bit more specifically, how would that model, which you hear a lot about as what the, at least in the United States, what we should be doing more of, versus the kind of model that you're describing?
1: We should try to avoid as far as possible the, the limitations provided by peer review. I mean, even DARPA... So that, that's review. the
0: key difference then. That's the key difference. That's that the, there, there's that's too key. much, there's too much review in like a this, DARPA-like agency.
1: That's, that, I mean, even though reviewers are encouraged to be more adventurous uh, and to be more risk averse, uh, to be more, uh, uh, more acceptance of risk, then, uh, um, uh, the scientists involved don't know; they do not know themselves which direction they want to go in, and so you have to find a way of, of, of picking those people capable of making those decisions in the in the first place. And you can only do that through extended face to face discussion. It's laborious in in time, and uh, um, and you have to keep at it. But it works; that the the arrangement works.
0: Is is it is is there? Is there there another model currently that's similar to that? Is this at all like the venture capital model and where people make
1: (laughs) Venture, you know, uh, um, when I joined BP, I was uh, rather disappointed. Um, They chose the name of the initiative, Venture Research. And I was very, very, very disappointed because the word venture immediately precipitates the word capital. So venture research, therefore, people automatically think of venture capital. Uh, and it could not be further f- further removed. Venture research and venture capital are opposite ends of the spectrum. Venture capital, you're looking for ways in which technologists can can find uh, new new national benefits. Venture research, we're looking at the we're looking uh, we set absolute requirements and look for ways in which scientists can can restructure the basis of knowledge. Every one of our venture researchers did that.
0: I guess why I use that example, and I understand sort of the goal is different, but that sort of venture capital process, which seems to me to be a based a lot on sort of conversation, uh, certainly willing to take a risk or taking a risk within the confines of what, that, those, um, uh, what those funds are meant to do. But it is a bit more sort of conversational, digging down uh really trying to understand the ideas I guess that's what I meant from that sort of perspective where it seems it seems less bureaucratic
1: oh de- definitely um bureaucracy is is a killer you've got to remove bureaucracy i mean uh um, the bu- the bureaucracy now is is uh is is amazing and academics only accept it because there is no alternative
0: as I'm just sort of thinking through this i wonder if I just wonder if this if this could even be done by the way the way certainly the way government is set up, the way a lot of big institutions operate, even sort of technology companies. And I'm wondering if this isn't something that would maybe best be funded by more sort of philanthropic ventures. We certainly have a lot of billionaires very interested in technological progress. Might that be the best way with where the initiatives are just? They're not they're not companies bigger. Otherwise, it's not government. It's not university, but more private sort of philanthropic ventures where you sort of your concept might be, uh, you know, reach, you know, reach it reach fruition.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, uh, um, uh, um, in, in 1980, BP was such an organization. I, I think that it no longer is. But there, there must be other organizations um, who are capable of doing this sort of thing. But um, but 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 they must they, they must make arrangements to to try to avoid all unnecessary bureaucracy. I mean, it, it is it's just a killer. It's just a killer for original thought.
0: Is there room for a new kind of university? Maybe we can't. Maybe we cannot do this through again. Just uh, asking existing institutions to change. Is there, is there a new kind of university that could? Uh, be created, which would, would be much freer, less bureaucratic, uh, really allowing you know more cutting I- edge ideas to come to fruition. Well,
1: I'm I'm proposing, I have proposed, in fact, that you that, that uh, any university can can uh, can uh, fit your requirements. That um, any university, UCL, for example, have set up its its own venture research initiative, uh, and uh, it has found in ten years one person. Uh, and he's doing spectacular work. His initial research cost 150,000 pounds over three years, which is almost free. He's since attracted, since then, five million pounds in in funding from the usual sources. So this can be a very profitable initiative. So any university can do it. And I'm proposing, I propose in my book, that universities should consider setting up their own venture research initiatives, but it will be difficult because, you know, um, academics are like anyone else. Why should they be impressed by, an, by uh, 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 um, an arrangement whose annual spend is close to zero? You know, which is what the UCL spend has been. But it's an well, exciting enterprise. Mm-hmm. You're constantly looking for proposals. And I've, I, I looked at one only a few months ago. Uh, and they constantly come forward. and You have to look at every single one of them. And you talk to them. You don't. You just. You don't just read it. You talk to them, and then uh, uh, make your decision.
0: What do you think about innovation prizes as a way where, uh, as as a way of sort of funding, uh, not just sort of you know breakthrough advances, but uh, funding people who otherwise might not get funded because they don't come from traditional sources or their ideas seem too far out there. Innovation prizes. Well, like the like the. Ex- prize
1: for example yes, yes. I I had, a, I had a long association with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, people involved in that and they uh, and they asked me to join them and they said um, we need you to to set some targets but uh, you know I said uh, I, I declined and said you you, you may consult anybody else anyone in the world and their opinion on what will be important in the future will be as valid as my own opinion is. You know, uh, nobody knows what, um, what the new discoveries will be. No one knows. And there's, we, but yet we understand almost nothing. You know, there's 95% of the universe is unknown to us. But, you know, dark energy, dark matter. We don't know about consciousness. You know, well, we, don't, we don't know very much anyway. And many other fields. So we, the, the, there's, there's a lot of ignorance in the world. And we have to find ways of getting it. But you cannot predict it. You cannot, nobody can predict it. I mean, uh, 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 the twentieth century demonstrates that in spades.
0: When you first wrote this book uh, about a decade ago, or more, yes. more than a decade, it's yeah. uh, it seems like things are actually going in the wrong direction. I would guess from your perspective. Let's there seems to be a lot, a lot more focus on picking certain sectors. Every everybody seems very confident that you know uh, that machine learning, artificial intelligence like that's what needs to be funded, or advanced battery storage, that's what needs to be funded. They, they see, people seem very confident they know exactly what technologies deserve a lot more funding. Uh, is that your perspective that we're kind of going in the wrong direction?
1: Oh, it's going in the wrong direction. Uh, um, um, for, 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 I mean, it should be done. You know, um, these, these, these problems are, are fine, but they do not address the problem I am addressing. That is the loss of creativity. The complete loss. I mean, uh, Patrick Collison, for example, questioned in an Atlantic article, you know, that the bang for buck had, had, had uh, apparently gone down considerably over the past uh, uh, few decades and ways must be found of putting that right. Well, we have found at least one way that that can do it. But it does it, it only it. it uh, um, the uh, it's people themselves who know what they want to do. They know which elements of, of, of science are weak and which need attention and it will uh, um, it will it will require such attention to solve the dark energy dark matter problem
0: i think one reason maybe it's going in the wrong direction is i think people look at the rise of china and they seem to be they, they and they and that their sort of industrial policy is pick certain key sectors create a 5 10 year plan throw a lot of money i think people look at the rise of china and they think well that's that's the way you do science and technology, which you have very smart engineers and bureaucrats in government pick these sectors and just throw a ton of money at them. I think many people have found that model to be very persu- persuasive and are now trying to duplicate it uh, here in the West, you know, maybe not exactly how they do it, but they, they, they find a lot of encouragement that, that that's a successful way to do transformational science.
1: Well, I don't agree. I mean, China must be competed with, you know, we, we, must, we must do these things. But uh, unless we do these other things, you know, that unless we can create the sort of freedom that led to Planck and Einstein and Rutherford and all the other scientists of the 20th century who wouldn't stand a cat in hell's chance of getting funded by the present method based on peer review and, and their constant assessment. So um, all these other things must be done but we need we need a very low cost initiative uh, either persuading universities to set up their venture research initiatives or companies to set up their venture research initiatives in a sort of philanthropic way and uh, with loose guidance and let them get on with it
0: our universities in general and maybe the education system and you know maybe your perspective is maybe maybe the perspective in great britain is different are we churning out the kind of young people who are willing to do this, who are creative, who are willing to go in these areas and take risks? Or, or does or, or is the problem actually start much earlier than the funding level, but just how the education system works as far as encouraging people to be imaginative?
1: It's a good question. Uh, you know, we, we, we may have traveled too far along the, the, this um, major technological discovery, you know, with the focus on the short term and, and competing with other people But venture researchers have no competitors. No one competes with them. They are, and every one of them from Planck onwards, you know, members of the Planck Club, as I could call them, they did not have any competitors. Nobody was trying to do what they were trying to do. And they succeeded, and they changed the world. And we all benefited hugely from that. But uh, 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 um, it's a good question of whether or not um, there are people, people still thinking this way. But I, I'm an optimist, and I think we will find them, if if we will, if if they know there's a source of funding there, they will probably go for it. You don't need many. We, we need 500, 500 scientists in in the, in the whole of the century. 500. That's all you need, which is which is a drop in the drop in the ocean. I mean, there are millions of scientists now in the world, millions.
0: Who is one of your radical scientists in that 500 from the 20th century? Who's one that you think? Every school kid should know, but doesn't, but probably doesn't know who that person is.
1: Well, uh, I think the one who, uh, um, the, the, uh, Oswald Avery uh, is, is, is my hero. He, he uh, uh, was a very mild-mannered man who in the forties uh, and fifties discovered the full significance of DNA, which was thought to be a junk molecule of no value whatsoever. And he discovered uh, that DNA, well, we all know now what, the, what, the, you know, what uh, DNA does, uh, and uh, he would have won the Nobel Prize uh, if, if he'd lived long enough, but the Nobel Committee ignored what he'd done and then finally realized it, but too, but too late. He is an amazing man, uh, Oswald T. Avery. So, um, but there, were, there are many others, actually. There are many others, and uh, they, they, they worked for years uh, um, Peter Mitchell, for example, um, w- w- was another uh, uh, of my heroes. and he looked for ways he looked to find the ways of which uh, um, uh, uh, living cells generate energy and uh, the conventional wisdom that this was a chemical process. And so people the whole world looked for, were looking for chemical intermediates in, 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 in the way this process was carried out. But he said, no, it's not chemical. It is physical. It's a, uh, it's a directed process. And, he, uh, and uh, um, he eventually won the Nobel Prize in 1987. And there are many people I've supported with uh, uh, venture, well, we supported in venture research, people like Ken Seddon, but he's now, I'm afraid, no longer with us.
0: Let me, let me finish with this. Do you think there are, you talked about sort of junk science. Do you think there are certain areas of science right now which we've sort of written off. I don't know, uh, cold fusion, you know, nanotechnology with sort of <laughs> molecular assembly. I don't know, uh, but do you think there's areas now which are, which people have written off, which may, who knows, with the right research, with the right imagination and some money and that we might find that under your system, we might find out in 10, 15 years are actually extremely important uh, areas of scientific endeavor.
1: Well, we have to rely on what scientists want to do we don't we cannot know we cannot know what, what the future holds and we must restore the creative uh, 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 freedom so that creative scientists original creative determined scientists can actually like like uh, oswald t avery can prove that what we uh, what we believe to be true was actually rubbish you know that dna is a very important molecule not a, a not a junk molecule
0: My guest today has been Don Braben. Don, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Jim.